Hope Church. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, joyful season of the year. We thank you for the thought of freedom that it brings to us. Uh, the 4th of July coming up and all of that. We pray that you would bless the families here and those that are not here, Lord. And we pray that you would make us aware that uh, afresh that true freedom comes only in Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords. We praise you for your love. We thank you for your spirit to teach us. We ask your great blessing on our time in your word. We Again, look to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Ephesians, and we've come to the second chapter, and uh, this is a a marvelous portion of God's Word, uh, tremendous in so many ways. The subject uh, I'm going to be speaking on this morning is God's grace to us by faith in Christ our peace. God's grace to us by faith in Christ our peace. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, we were told that God's purpose from eternity past was to call out a people for himself in Christ. And this second chapter tells us how, in the process of time, God is actually doing this, calling out a people in Christ for himself. So it's a tremendous chapter, and it has so much to do with our individual uh, salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. Chapter 2, 1 through 18 is as far as we're uh, supposed to get today. Now, one of the things to remember is that the magnitude of God's grace is seen in two ways in this passage. Two ways. First, the Christian's position in Christ. This is a true born-again person who has been regenerated by the power of God. That Christian's position in Christ individually is talked about in the first ten verses. And the Christian's position in Christ collectively Uh, verses 11 through 18, actually to the end of the chapter. So when we're thinking about this, we want to remember the position in Christ individually and the position in Christ collectively. First three verses tell us what we were, what we were. So we'll be reading and commenting on the verses as we go through, and I trust that uh, each one of us will, will be able to Look to the Lord for understanding. Verse 1, And you who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now he's addressing the Christians and looking toward the past life before they came to Christ. He says they were dead in trespasses and sins. And that really sums up the condition of sinners in general. Dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. It's like someone shooting at a target 
and it just always falls short. Sinners by nature and action are separated from God, who is the source of all life. Therefore, we're dead in trespasses and sins. It says in Romans 6 and 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then it says, in which you once walked. Now he's using the term you there, specifically of these Gentile people who are now believers in Christ. Now he says, you once walked this way. That's a really strange paradox, isn't it? Uh, dead and yet walking. Uh, you know, there are horror movies made on this kind of thing. And it's, this is really more scary than any horror movie. And more tragic, certainly, than any of them. Uh, Walking speaks of a repeated pattern of life. Uh, You repeat one foot in front of the other again and again and again. And so this was their former life. Walking in trespasses and in sins, dead in them. And someone once said that the whole world is like one vast graveyard. And every cornerstone in that has this inscription, dead through sin. So that's, uh, that's a pretty bleak picture, but don't, don't uh, stop with that. It was also according to the course of this world. Unbelievers go on in ignorance of God and his ways. Uh, that's the experience of every Christian in the past we went on ignorant of God and his ways. And to walk according to the age of this world is to conform to the world's shifting standards of right and wrong. And that's certainly obvious, isn't it? You, you, you look 20 years ago, what was considered right and wrong? You look today, it is a shifting standard always. And in this shifting standards, you have, you're, the, the unbeliever is swept up in the pleasures and the practices of the particular time that he is in. And it's according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, the prince of the authority of the air is Satan, the devil himself. That's quite plain. This ruler, Satan, has authority over all the powers of wickedness and he is a master of all evil. Now, we, we see a lot of people who claim to be free in one way or another. But without Christ, they are in spiritual bondage. And uh, spiritual bondage takes many different forms. And some folks have more chains around them than others. More ropes tying them around and down than others do. And some might not even recognize what they're in bondage to. They think it's freedom. They think it's love. They think it's something else. And even the, the cultist, he's not going to say, well, look at me. I'm, I'm a practicer of a false cult. No, he thinks it's okay. And he's in bondage to those things. Now, this is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, Satan energizes men and women in their rebellion against God. 
And uh, this, this particular phrase here, sons of disobedience, is a, uh, a Hebrew expression meaning their chief characteristic is disobedience. So what God wants, they don't do. In fact, so many of them are ignorant of God's uh, wants and, and desires for them and commands. They disobey even without knowing and then the chapter, verse 3 uh, of this chapter says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Now that's, we all is kind of important there because it's bringing the Gentiles and the Jews together into this picture. He was formerly talking about the Gentiles. But now he says we all uh, are, had lived in this sphere of lust. And then you got to admit, this is a pretty big admission for a Pharisee, one who was a, a Pharisee in his past life, who tried to be meticulous in obedience to what God had said. But he had to admit, yeah, I was just like the rest of them. I was caught up in the desires of my own flesh, fulfilling, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And so the the flesh here refers to the unregenerate nature. It's not just the body, but it's that fallen nature that expresses itself through uh, the human body. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So this is a tremendous indictment. Many today deny what is plainly taught throughout the word of God. But uh, as, as we... Uh, had our conversation some of us the other night God is love but he's also holy and he's also just and he cannot just overlook sin and iniquity the judge of all the earth must and will eventually judge sin all sin here the word uh, children is is the word techna and it describes or suggests at least a close relationship. Now, we know that unbelievers do not have a close relationship with God. Far be it from that. But they do have a close relationship with the wrath of God. By nature, children of wrath. This uh, coincides with the, the message of of the scripture, like the Apostle John says in the Gospel of John, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What a thought. This, this uh, tremendous wrath abiding over every unbelieving person. There is that call of God to come out from under that wrath, to come into the sphere of blessing. But this is the dark background for the glory of God's grace, which Paul is now going to show us in verses 4 through 6. It has to do not with what we were, but with what God did. It says, but God who is rich in mercy. Now what is mercy? Mercy is God's undeserved kindness toward sinners. Because of his great love with which he loved us. The word love here is the word agape, which means 
in the verb form to seek the highest good in the one loved. And God sought our highest good while we were yet in trespasses and in sins. Sinners dead in sin have nothing to commend themselves to God. Yet, God loves them. No wonder calls, Paul calls this, this love a great love. His great love wherewith he loved us. And we might say, he loved even me. That's such a blessing. And then in ver- uh, the fifth verse, it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is how God sees us positionally in Christ. For the person in Christ who has moved from death to life, from darkness to light, he is now seen by God in a totally different way. God sees him positionally in Christ. He might not feel like he's there. He might not sometimes act like he's there. But if he's truly in Christ, God sees him as seated with Christ. And uh, this is a tremendous thought. We have been forgiven. We've been given life. We've been raised up together. We have this resurrection life. And we're made to sit together. Now, of course, that too brings a kind of finality and rest to this whole business of salvation. God's view of us seated with Christ gives us a sense of peace and a knowledge that our toil will one day cease and we will be uh, happy and joyful in Christ forever. So God has given us amazing grace. God has given us life for death. He's raised us up spiritually. And he's positioned us seated with Christ. And so what happened with Jesus in a physical way happens to us in a spiritual way when we believe. We're identified with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the highest place seated at the right hand of the Father. This spiritual resurrection is pretty much equivalent to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and will one day result in our physical resurrection. You have to have the first before you have the second. And uh, that second physical resurrection culminates the, the process of salvation where we're with Jesus forever. So then we come to verse 7. What God will do in those coming ages that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The incomparable riches of Christ are explained as we look ahead. This expands on that parenthetical statement of verse 5. You are saved by grace. By grace you have been saved. So we come now to a further explanation And in the future, you as a believer who has been brought out of darkness into light and given a new life and uh, just been made like Jesus Christ himself, 
will then become a, a monument to God's grace. You will be on display that all creation can uh, learn of God's amazing grace for all eternity to come. And so uh, the best is yet to come and the greatness of his grace will continue to be manifest. Now it tells us how God has worked. So Paul is going to go back and explain how great this grace is because of what it took to put it in place. By the Spirit, Paul tells us that the foundation of grace or salvation for each believer is this grace. And it goes and speaks to the glory of God. Verse 8 and and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now the basis of salvation is grace. And the means of salvation is faith. That's real important. The basis is grace. God's unconditional forgiveness due to no merit of our own. In fact, in spite of our shortcomings. But the means of that salvation is faith. And that not of your and that or this not of yourselves. Now it's interesting that many have misunderstood Paul's words here. And uh, thankfully, the original language helps us clarify what is clearly taught elsewhere in the New Testament. It is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. And it's not, uh, as some would have it, faith. God works so that all have the potential to believe the gospel. God doesn't say, I'm going to give this person faith, but not that person. The, the, the choice is yours. Now, how can we show this uh, from the scripture? Now, if you're inclined to languages, you might want to pay special attention to this. Otherwise, uh, not. But in, in Greek, things are, are tied together, uh, whether it's by case, whether it's a subject or an object or whatever, and by... Uh, uh, gender. Now, we're talking about grammatical gender here. It has nothing to do really with sex. It's just gramma- grammar. Masculine, feminine, neuter. So, it's interesting here. The word grace in the original is feminine. The word faith is feminine. But this, the word this, is the neuter. And so, generally in Greek grammar... Nouns and pronouns must, must agree in gender. The word this would not refer back to grace or faith since the demonstrative pronoun this is neuter while grace and faith are feminine nouns. This, the word tuta, refers back to the preceding fa- phrase or clause uh, just like it does in Verse 15 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3. So this, the word tuta, refers back to the preceding section. Well, what is in the preceding section? The concept of salvation. So this salvation is the gift of God. Now, gift is also neuter, and uh, thus this and gift go together properly. In the original. 
So to, to finalize it and to summarize it, this, that is the gift of God, is not faith, but the salvation of God. Now you go to chat, verse 9, not of works. Not of works is, means not sourced in words. It's, it's a Greek preposition, ek, de, denoting source. So salvation is not sourced in works. Now notice that the parallel between verse 8 and verse 9 emphasizes the point. It would not suit to say the obvious that grace is not sourced in works. Neither would it be useful to say the obvious that faith is not sourced in works. The proper meaning of gift being salvation is reinforced by saying that salvation is not sourced in works, since its basis is grace. As Paul writes in Romans by the Spirit, to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now notice this results in the fact that no one can boast, lest anyone should boast. Since no person can bring salvation to himself by his own efforts, no one can boast. The believer's boasting can only be in the Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now Paul goes on to tell us that salvation is God's workmanship. It says, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Not to work in them, but to walk in them. This is the thought that uh, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it's not uh, salvation, not from man or by man's works. We are his workmanship. Now, it's a different word here that's used for work. It's, it's not the same as previously used, the human work, but it's God's work, God's art, God's masterpiece. This is what salvation is. Now, we're created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship because we're created by God. Remember that verse in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this is a tremendous verse, especially if you've been in the world and you, you've, you've done and seen and been things that are really horrendous and you know you just wish you could just erase them from your past well you can if you're in Christ they are erased from your past you are uh, a new creation now they they're there of course in the past but you're no longer the same person you are new in Christ and that's a tremendous comfort and encouragement and you're there for one thing God wants it to result in good works we're for were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, <clears throat> this is God's plan. 
He wants his workmanship to result in good works in our lives. We studied Titus recently, and we read in chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that's Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And in chapter 3 of that book, verse 8, it says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now notice that these good works were prepared beforehand for us. God prepared them in advance for us to do them, that we should walk in them. Now to walk in them is not to work in them, but is to walk in them. And so God has really prepared a path of good works for believers to walk on. And uh, we must, must uh, constantly check, and check ourselves. Am I walking in the path of the good works God wants me to do? Now we might just summarize, just to look back on our passage so far. First of all, people were spiritually dead and deserving God's wrath. And then uh, we see that by God's amazing grace, he's provided salvation through faith. And believers are God's workmanship in whom and through whom he performs good works. And believers are meant to walk on the path of good works prepared for them. Now we go from the personal, the individual position in Christ to the Christian's position in Christ collectively. And first we see that we are reconciled and we are united. Uh, chapter 2, 11 through 22. And we'll stop at verse 18 more or less. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now this tells us something about the Ephesian church. Most of the people, the believers in the Ephesians church would have been Gentiles, non-Jews. Paul reminds the Ephesian believers in verse 12 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just to summarize what he's saying here, no messianic prophecy uh, prospect at all. They didn't have the Messiah. They weren't even looking for him. They were outside of Israel. They had no claim to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were without any hope and without knowledge of the one true and living God. Now, He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that is, these Gentile sinners, they they were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Gentiles, non-Jews, are made near to God by the sacrificial death of Christ. So this is a great change that has come 
by their faith in the saving work of Christ. So, as he says later in verse 19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Colossians, one of the other prison epistles, Paul writes, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's from Colossians 1. So what a change has been uh, made here. Uh, It's almost beyond measure. You can't really put your arms around the great change that uh, has been experienced by Gentiles through being brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus Christ has brought spiritual peace between Jew and Gentile in Christ. Now that was a big thing because there was this animosity that we'll be reading about in the ancient world especially and it continues today in so many anti-Semitic kinds of uh, thought and actions in the world. Uh, we, not long ago, and I was alive during it, you know, you had the Second World War where uh, six million Jewish people were murdered just because they were Jewish. Now, this is, this is a horrible thing. And uh, yet in Jesus Christ, you have the potential for spiritual peace to be brought uh, between Jews and Gentiles and people of every uh, sort in every nation. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of petition. What is this middle wall of petition? Various things have been suggested. There's one uh, idea that's kind of very interesting. Might possibly be an allusion to the wall that separates the in the temple, the court of the Gentiles, from the court of the Jews. Now, there was an inscription on that wall, <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting. It warned the Gentiles that under penalty of death, they would go beyond it. They would just be tossing their lives away. So there was that wall possibly as, a, as a, some sort of an illusion here. We don't know. But the most basic idea here is that the Mosaic law was a dividing line between the Jews and the Gentiles. The wall describes the spiritual enmity that existed uh, between Jews and Gentiles. Now in verse 15 it says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. The law itself was not the enmity, but the cause of the hostility. You know, the Jews wanted to keep the law while the Gentiles weren't concerned about that. That difference was a barrier between them. Christ's death rendered the law, the law of Moses, inoperative inoperative in the lives of believers. That's an important idea. It becomes inoperative in the lives of believers. 
because like Paul writes in Romans, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10 and 14. So uh, though the law is still out there and condemns all sorts of wickedness in the world, for Jew and Gentile who believe, they're no longer under the law, but under grace. And the law is no longer a, a, uh, a difference that produces hostility between them. Now, Christ destroyed this, the barrier of hostility by making the law inoperative for believers. He goes on to say that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances or decrees. So as to create in himself one new man from the two. In other words, the one new man is composed of saved Jews and saved Gentiles, thus making peace. And thus he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Now the two groups are made into one. Now it's important here to realize that the church is not a continuation of Israel of the Old Testament. The church is something new. It is a new spiritual entity composed of Jews and Gentiles and it's not that one becomes like a Gentile becomes a Jew or a Jew becomes a Gentile. Of course, they continue their cultural and uh, national or, or, or racial rather uh, differences. But there is a new unity. It's a spiritual unity in Christ. Therefore, it puts to death the enmity, the hostility. By dying, Jesus made possible the death of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The message of the cross has the power to change hearts and to bring peace to every form of strife. Peace with God for Jews and Gentiles comes through Jesus. And it says, And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off. A good example of this preaching peace to the people that were far off the Gentiles is found in our passage in Acts 17 as we've been going through the book of Acts. In the missionary preaching of Paul when he was in Athens, Greece, it says in verse 23 of Acts 17, For I was, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he has made from one every nation of men to dwell on earth, on the face of the earth. I'm skipping a bunch of verses. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. In verse 30, he says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So he came and preached peace to those that were far off and continues to do so through the gospel. And to those who were near, it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So we come down to the the end of things in this passage, which talks about what the Jews and the Gentiles are in Christ together. Uh, This is chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So now that that God has brought us into his family by grace, through faith, we all have full and equal access by the Spirit of God to the Father. What a blessing. Remember, you as a believer have spiritual access directly to the Father. You don't go through any human, uh, solely human intermediary to do this. There's no priest or monk or anybody else in between you and the Father. Through Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and men, you have full access by the Spirit to the Father. So let's just sum up the passage by saying this. The amazing grace of God has appeared to fallen men and women dead in trespasses and sins. This grace came through the payment for sin made by the death of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings life to the believer, whether Jew or Gentile. The unique result is a new entity, the church, the spiritual body of Christ. Here, Jew and Gentile are joined together on an equal basis with equal access to the Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come today uh, corporately and individually uh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and by your blessed Holy Spirit. And we can come with thanksgiving. We can come with assurance that we are accepted in the beloved. We can come with uh, our hearts full of love and praise because of all the great things that you have done for us. And Lord, as we uh, pause to think of freedom in these days, we pray that we would think of the great freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the freedom from sin and death. And we thank you for this simple uh, memorial that we celebrate today, the, 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 the wonderful uh, thought of the bread, the body of Christ given and the cup, the blood of Christ shed for sinners such as we are. We pray that you would just bless our time together as we remember him, as we think of the great things that he has done for us, and as we look forward to sharing those things with others 
and throughout eternity being a, a trophy of the great grace of God in and through the blessed Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus, Father. Thank you for all he's done for us in his worthy name. Amen.